Cardinals are off today, so it is time for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. It's been a while, Ben, since uh, since we recorded one of these. The last off day was on August 15th, and uh, in that time, Albert Pujols has hit uh, 429, 487, 914, and uh, crushed five home runs. So uh, <laughs> a lot has happened since we were last together. Yes, he's still fulfilling his role as ambassador to St. Louis for the Explore St. Louis campaign. Um, and it has been so much fun to watch. Uh, after the home run in Cincinnati in game one of the series, uh, I told uh, my wife and our eight-year-old, I said, Albert Pujols now holds the all-time record for having hit a home run off of 450 different pitchers. And our eight-year-old said, is that a lot? That sounds like a lot. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, yes, if you hit 400 home runs total, uh, you usually make it into the Hall of Fame. And then he responded with, and Albert Pujols is just out there hitting more home runs. And so uh, he w- his eyes got really big then when I told him, yeah, he's only 20 away from Babe Ruth because uh, Babe Ruth became a fascination after we watched The Sandlot. And yeah. so the idea that Pujols, in his mind, he thinks Pujols might catch Babe Ruth. That probably won't happen this year. But uh, he is uh, very in tune with what's happening. And it's really fun because... Albert Pujols was not a Cardinal during his lifetime until this year. And to have him sort of take it back to the 20, I guess the aughts in his performance level. So he gets to experience it and get a taste of what Albert Pujols is like has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, and same, uh, we, uh, I, I have a son the same age and, uh, uh, my son has been watching the 2011 World Series movie for years, so he's kind of seen Albert Pujols through that lens. But yeah, for him to have the opportunity to actually see him like live on the field and not see, frankly, like the busted old version of Albert that I think we all kind of expected we were going to get has been uh, has been pretty exciting. So so uh, anyway, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about Albert, I'm sure. Um, we're going to talk Jack Flaherty, we're going to talk the outfield, and we're going to answer some questions um, as we go through today. Uh, but uh, just to get things started, uh, Ben, is there something that you've learned since August 15th? Um, you know, this is something maybe not so much that I have learned, but maybe the Cardinals on-field management has learned or at least had an opportunity to put into practice, and it's something that we've talked about for a couple years, and it is that playing the platoon advantage works, and it can make the overall offensive production of your club a lot better. And it has been very heartening to see Marmol and the Cardinals leverage their platoon advantage, uh, in particular against right-handed pitchers over the last several weeks. Uh, You know, you're seeing more lineups with Newt Barr, and Donovan at the top and uh, taking advantage of Nolan Gorman and Corey Dickerson who has turned things around and a big part of him turning things around has been you know their disciplined usage of him uh, by and large and so uh, seeing the Cardinals willing to stack the lineup with left-handed batters against right-handed starters Um, except for Albert Pujols, because, I mean, let's be honest, at this point in time, I just want him to start every game to see if he can, (laughs) if he can get lucky and, and and crack one off of a righty and get to 700. But setting that aside, a big part of Pujols' resurgence has been, uh, Marmol being a little bit more disciplined with the way that he uses Pujols as well, more against left-handed pitching. And so, um, I think it's been really good to see the Cardinals embrace that this year because it's something that they have needed to do for a couple of seasons now. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mention uh, Pujols and uh, his splits because that leads right into what I've learned and really our first topic, which is going to be Pujols as well. So (laughs) I guess this will all roll together. But, uh, you know, Ben, I think what I have learned, and I I tweeted this out, I think, a week or two ago, but I, I updated the stats. Albert Pujols is not just hitting left handed pitching well now. He's hitting left-handed pitching better than he ever has in his entire career. And I, I ran these numbers again today just to update them. So from 2001 till 2011, Albert's uh, you know, 
uh, main thrust of his career when he was in St. Louis there. Uh, his weighted runs created plus uh, versus left-handed pitchers was 180. Okay, so extremely good. Since the middle of last season when he was traded to, or well, when he you know got to the Dodgers, and that was basically the start of him moving into this pretty heavily platooned role, um, his weighted runs created plus against uh, left-handed pitchers is actually 189. So it's, it's even slightly better than it was at his peak. And uh, as a Cardinal this season versus left-handed hitting, he's, uh, he's at a 232 weighted runs created plus. That blows my mind, Ben. <laughs> it's almost like he, you know, since he's, there's a whole part of his brain, the right-handed hitting part of his pitcher hitting part of his brain that he's not having to use. It's like he's able to concentrate his skill in that one area and, and, and somehow actually be even better than he was in that area at his peak. Is, is that not nuts? Oh, it's really crazy. And he, he has been pretty bad against uh, right-handed pitching. Well, not since the All-Star break no, he hasn't been. That that's true. And uh, but, but overall this year he has been. And he's been so good against lefties that it's offset it. And he's not he he he's not going to qualify in all likelihood for the batting title. I don't think. Uh, yeah, I'd be surprised. Um, but uh, coming into the episode tonight, I looked at he if you if you use the cutoff at two hundred and fifty plate appearances, his weighted runs created plus of one forty six, which is forty six percent above league average after adjusting for home park effects. Uh, Pujols ranks 14th in Major League Baseball amongst batters with at least 250 plate appearances. Yeah. And that's ahead of, you know, these guys. You, you may have heard of some of them like, you know, Shohei Otani. Mm-hmm. But, he's <laughs> Alex a, but he's a pitcher, Ben. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. He, he is a pitcher. But you look at some of the guys, Pete yeah. Alonso. Yeah. You know, Byron Buxton, you know, there are some really good hitters that he is in the company of uh, and uh, in terms of overall production uh, at the plate this year. Well, and so I did look up what what are his numbers versus right-hand pitchers in the second half. And uh, his WRC plus against right-handed pitchers in the second half is 129 right now, um, which... Uh, no, it, it's like 56 plate appearances or something. It's obviously, you know, crazy small. But I think even just kind of the eye test as we've been watching it these last couple of weeks, as he has been kind of getting a, some more starts against right-handed pitching, and he really hasn't – he's looked better against them. It doesn't seem like he's got the power nearly as much from the right-hand side. But, um, you know, still seems like he's getting the hits. Uh, the home run he had uh, in game one of the Red Series – uh, you know, kind of going to right field. That was just a classic Albert Pujols home run. I mean, that was the thing I, th- I feel like throughout his career in St. Louis, it was just it was the power to all fields. It was taking a pitch wherever it was on the plate and and driving it. Um, and you, you honestly, you didn't see many hitters who could do it then, and you see almost nobody who can do it now. Yeah, nowadays the approach. Um, and there was a quote I can't remember who gave it. Uh, after the the trip to Wrigley, and it and it was along the lines of he's not letting the ball get deep anymore. He's being more aggressive and just trying to hit it out. Yeah. And the home run, oddly enough, against the Reds was one where maybe he let it get a little bit deeper, which he did used to do a lot more of. And it seems like uh, a big part of his success this year is taking the more, I guess. For, for lack of a better term, 21st century approach and, mm-hmm. you know, just selling out to pull the ball out of the ballpark and like, oh, hey, I'm a yeah. really good hitter. I can do this. Whereas a lot of guys maybe aren't so good and yeah. they, they focus more more narrowly mm-hmm. and, and he has lost some skill. And so yeah. as you said, he's able to focus it in that way yeah. and he's up there hunting for balls, you know, even if yeah. they're at the letters that he can yank out of the park. Well, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not given the get off my lawn, like hitters used to be better argument either. You know, the reason that hitters, I think modern hitters tend to maybe narrow their focus what they do a little bit more is because they're facing such unbelievably nasty stuff. So really if they can focus on a zone and kind of dominate that zone, that's enough to be effective. If they try to cover everything, they just they can't against the level of pitching that's out there today. 
oh no, but someone should tell that to the Hall of Famers so they don't accost <laughs> the commissioner at their dinner uh, together oh, at the in, after the induction ceremony. Um, so, Bill, what else did you want to hit on Albert Pulse? I know just in our texts earlier today, you kind of threw out the, the question that people are starting to ask a little bit more about, you know, might he come back and play next year? So, what are, I mean, what do you think on that? You know, I am someone where if, if you have a goal that motivates you um, and you're enjoying what you're doing, maybe you try that. And, and Pools has been pretty clear that he's done no matter what. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that A-Rod is just kind of a douche. So, like, yeah. if I were Albert Pujols and somehow the season ended and I were, like, one home run behind A-Rod, <laughs> that would not stand for me. Um, and I would maybe <laughs> call John Mosellock and work out a deal where after I hit two home runs, I will retire after the game and we can we can have the <laughs> retirement ceremony. Um, but in, in coming up with the stat uh, for our 8-year-old that he is 20 home runs away from Babe Ruth, yeah, and I don't, we don't know what the rest of the season holds. Seven hundred is is pretty neat too. Yeah, um, and when he signed with the Angels, uh, I had the post at Viva Albertos, Albert Pujols and the St. Louis Cardinals. What will never be? And one of the things that would never be, according to my post, was seeing him hit his seven hundredth home run as a Cardinal. So. Yeah. You know, those round numbers that are a big part of baseball history certainly have an allure to me. Has, has anyone reposted that article on Twitter and tagged you and been like, oh, it looks like you were wrong about that? <laughs> Not yet. They probably will now, though. Uh, but so that would have an allure to me. But he also seems like, you know, the, the injuries, the decline in production seem yeah. to have given him a pretty well-rounded look. Yeah. And he seems to be really happy that he's going out with Yachty as a cardinal yeah and and that seems to be more important than any specific number yeah but man if i were him and i you know and you even if it's five or even six Mm -hmm. home runs away from 700 uh or if you have an outside shot at you know coming into an all-time tie or surpassing babe ruth yeah you know, and and granted, I I think I was eleven or twelve when the Sandlot came out. So I every time I say that, I I have Smalls and every and the great Hambino you know, saying in my ear, you know, the Sultan of SWAT. You know, yeah. Um, but it to me, it has a lot of allure, um, and there's a part of me that would really love for him if he's continuing to hit at this level to just come back and do it at age forty three, like, you know, just. This has been a lot of fun to have him remind yeah. people. And, and you'll recall, I really like Miguel Cabrera. I don't mean this as an insult to Miguel Cabrera. Mm-hmm. But when Pujols' decline came on sooner than expected and yeah. Cabrera was doing amazing things, people were talking about how he's the best hitter of his generation. And it was the most ridiculous thing that I'd ever heard in my life because you know we're Cardinals fans who watched Albert Pujols. Right. For you know the first half of his career, yep. And there's just no comparison. And you know now when you go look at those numbers and you look at kind of where Pujols is now, it's almost like yeah. you know like John Wick coming back. Like hey, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm back. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and it and it's really uh, fun to see as a fan. Oh yeah. And and just been an absolute joy well and i did the same thing and you know and to be clear for us miguel caprera 100 percent like a first ballot inner circle hall of famer as well but yeah i i remember that as well through the kind of 20 teens there really the public perception seemed to be that well cabrera was the hitter of his generation so i did i went back and looked miguel cabrera has 506 home runs <laughs> you know our is threatening 700 and not to get even get into all the other more advanced stats so um yeah it, you know when you think about what you know would coming back next year even be a possibility that is interesting to think about those things um and and i have no idea what what Pujols, you know what his priorities are um and what he's you know maybe gonna gonna want to do how he feels 
I tend to think that for these guys, well, I don't know. I tend to think maybe the, the raw numbers themselves don't mean as much, but I guess you never know what motivates these guys and, and if a number like that might motivate him. Um, if you're the Cardinals, and let's say he finishes out this season, I mean, I, he probably can't finish out quite as red hot as he is right now, but he's at this point, he's going to finish this year with better numbers than any of us thought he was going to. So he finishes out this season, and he says, you know, hey, man, uh, what about coming back? What do you, I mean, what do you think the Cardinals do? So I, I think Bill DeWitt does a little bit of research to see what the supply chain dynamics are like. Uh, because the team <laughs> store, the MLB shop... <laughs> they order those Pujols bobbleheads a little earlier. Yes, they, they can do all the Pujols stadium giveaways. They can have uh, Pujols jerseys in full supply in victory blue and bright red and navy... Uh, right now, I think in they only City have, Connect. Yes, they'll <laughs> they'll have the Pujol City Connect jerseys. They'll have uh, all of the Pujols authentic button down jerseys for sale on yeah. the website. I, I think you were lucky enough to find a Victory Blue one in I the did. wild at a store a couple weeks ago, um, and that's the first I had seen of that. And I I think it's pretty telling. You know, they have trending merchandise on the team store, and it's always the custom jersey because I think everyone is just getting Pujols yep. custom jerseys, in yep. particular in the Victory Blue. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, I, I think the Cardinals look long and hard at it because the energy in Bush Stadium when he comes up is like it yeah. was. Yeah. And it's it's so fun yeah and it's something that you want to experience i know dan mclaughlin has been uh tweeting you know you need to come down and see him because you're never going to get another opportunity i completely yeah. agree with that um you know we got to see two home runs by him when we were down there and mm-hmm. it was just incredible but but was he what was even more incredible is just the reception for him compared to the two mvp candidates there was no comparison yes and so i think from all of the kind of the fan experience selling merchandise and tickets and all those types of things i think it makes a lot of sense for the team yeah and from a roster construction i mean who knows if he hits yeah but even if he hits well even if he hits for uh, his career numbers against left-handed hitters, yeah. right? Let's yeah. regress it way down. Yeah. That's still a very nice player to have. They now have a manager who's able to leverage those types of uh, platoon advantages better yeah. than they've had in the past. Yeah, And I, I think it does, from a baseball and a business perspective, you know, it makes some sense. And it... And then maybe Wainwright might come back too, and you might have Pujols going for 700 homers and Wainwright going for, you know, uh, yeah. you know, a, a few of those types of benchmarks as well, and it it kind of becomes uh, yeah. no one was buried at, uh, like a pharaoh, buried like a excuse me buried like a pharaoh's wife. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, and it it, and it it would be this was Yadi's farewell tour, um, but also I think Pujols has enjoyed just going around one last time. He's gotten all of his gifts, mm-hmm. you know, and he just he doesn't seem to be at a place where he's going to do like a Michael Jordan though. Yeah, and just well, do an about face. That's the, the but you know I think that's the concern if he comes back one more year. Are we are we setting ourselves up for the Michael Jordan on the Washington Wizards? That's the first thing that I think about when that happens. But I'm with you. I mean, I think honestly, in a world where he says I want to come back, I think the team absolutely does it because first of all, if he wants to play another season, I don't think they want him to get those milestones in a Pittsburgh Pirates uniform. And uh, as we said at the beginning of the season, you know, if you're talking about uh, you know platoon right-handed bat. You know, you're talking about like the 26th man on your roster anyway. You know, this year you're basically you're looking at like the sort of you know Yepes, uh, uh, you know Dickerson kind of like end of the bench. It's just not that big a deal. And so for everything that he brings, um, and then you know of course the the potential to hit those milestones, I think there's kind of no no question. So anyway, who knows if we'll see that? Maybe he'll maybe he'll get to 700 if he hits like he has the last two weeks. He he is going to do it. Um, so, Ben, for our second topic, um, you know, we wanted to talk about 
the imminent return of Jack Flaherty, it would seem. I guess we should let folks know uh, we are recording this before Flaherty's uh, Wednesday night start in the minors. So if he threw one pitch and his arm exploded, um, we are not aware of that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, what what do you think about Flaherty, you know, potentially rejoining the team you know, in about five days from when folks are listening to this? Uh, it's really exciting. I, I think what the team reportedly targeted at the trade deadline uh, was a starter with swing and miss stuff. And it's not that they didn't get out and, and add players that improved their swing and miss capability in their rotation, but it, it is inarguable that they did not get elite whiff stuff for the rotation at the trade deadline. And so Jack Flaherty uh, is that type of pitcher. And if he's healthy... Has been that type of pitcher. Yeah, yeah. well, that's true. That's fair. We don't know how he'll perform now. But he has the potential to be that pitcher uh, in a way that the Cardinals just have not had since he first experienced the shoulder issues uh, last year. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm very hopeful... The first thing you hope for, of course, is health. But, you know, he's going to get, if he's healthy, enough starts that he could be, you know, he could be pretty crisp and feeling pretty good when October rolls around if yeah. the Cardinals make the postseason. Yeah, and I don't know enough about the kind of rehab work that he's done. And I don't really know if any of us can to know what's different now than it was in June where he went through – uh, you know, a round of rehab starts and then, you know, came up and was basically injured almost immediately. Um, you know, I look back and I saw, so during that June run of rehab starts, he made five starts. Um, he only threw more than three innings once. And, and you know, obviously his pitch counts were kind of kept low, but, but he really didn't stretch out very much down there. And of course, you remember, he kind of came up earlier than it seemed like the team wanted to. And the thought was maybe he'd do some more of that stretching out up there. That didn't really happen. In this run, um, you know, he has at least, um, and I think he's made four starts so far this August. Um, he's, uh, you know, four innings and five innings even in his last two starts. And again, we don't know what he'll do on uh, on the, this Wednesday. So, um, and I'm, I'm not looking at the pitch counts. Obviously, innings and pitch counts aren't the same thing. But, but you know, by all accounts, it seems like he's getting a little bit more length down there. And so, you know, um, I'm not really going to look at his, like, ERA or any of those kind of numbers for what he's doing in these, these rehab starts. That's not really going to be meaningful for me. It's hard to really find anything meaningful there. But the one thing that I thought we can look at is, like, well, if he's going a little deeper into games, at least that hopes that that maybe suggests that there's, there's a little, you know, better health there. And then, um, you know, if he's healthy... Yeah, then I think it yeah it becomes just that question of like how effective is he because um, he has been uh, you know an ace level pitcher in the major leagues, but it's been a couple years since you know since he was that guy and maybe it was a couple injuries that he had to fight through and he'll rise back to that level. We certainly see guys do that, but you know there's also guys who do who don't do that you know and after a few injuries they just can kind of never get back there. But um, for me, the the really great thing is I feel like for the last couple of years, we've been like just, oh, my God, when when will Flaherty come back? Like, we need Flaherty. Like, he's this kind of, like, you know, magic answer that we're waiting on. And honestly, this season, I feel like if, if Flaherty can't come back and be effective, I think they're fine. I think with the upgrades they made at the, um, at the deadline, you know, I mean, not as good as they are if he comes back and is effective, but they don't need him in the way that they have in the past. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that assessment. I think the club went out and approached the trade deadline uh, with the intent to, you know, basically make uh, them Flaherty on the IL proof to the greatest extent possible. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, uh, Dakota Hudson is still starting uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals. And... It wasn't terribly surprising on the day when he was starting to hear Oliver Marmol say, oh, there's, we, we might do a six-man rotation after Flaherty gets back. And so, Ben, what was your take when you heard uh, that come out of the manager's mouth? I mean, my, my read on that was 
they're not read, they're not going to announce right before a Dakota Hudson start that like, oh yeah, once Flaherty's here, this guy's this guy's out of here. <laughs> like, <right? laughs> like I've already bought him a bus ticket. Um, uh, so the, you know, honestly, that's how I that's how I read that. Um, both because you know you don't want to say that to discourage the player, but also as we've talked about before, like even if something's a couple a few days away with pitchers. You don't want to commit to anything because every day is a day that one of your pitchers could go out there and have a catastrophic injury. And so, you know, even if the plan is to move Hudson to the bullpen or even to the minor leagues when Flaherty comes back, if they have a starter in the next couple days go down with injury, that's no longer the plan. (laughs) And so you're not going to announce something like that until the last minute. So I really think that was the reason why. Could they do a six-man rotation? I suppose, and the only reason that I think it, it, hypothetically possible is that you know they they they've been building a, a pretty good lead on the Brewers, and maybe it's enough so that they feel like the added day of rest for all of their other pitchers is more valuable than maybe the more competitiveness you would get out of having all those guys in there. But like somebody pointed out the other day, I think I think they're like seven games behind the Mets which is really a lot at this point in the season. That's probably insurmountable, but it's also like kind of not impossible. And, and of course you'd have to pass the Braves too in that scenario. Um, and, and, you know, getting into one of those top two division finishes and getting that buy from that wild card round would be huge. So to me, they're close enough to that, that I don't think you can, even if they felt like they had a comfortable lead over the Brewers, I don't think they can pack it in. So long way of saying, I think if Flaherty returns, Hudson's out. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I would be very surprised to see them go to a six-man rotation because, you know, quite frankly, Hudson has not given them much of a reason to start him. No. And uh, when you look at it, you can kind of try to talk yourself into it. Like, Miles Michaelis hasn't pitched a lot in the last couple of years. You right. could manage his workload a little bit and, yeah. and hopefully keep him fresh for the postseason. You know, you could even manage Adam Wainwright's workload a little bit and Jordan Montgomery and, and Quintana's. But, uh, and also the pitching coach has been big about honoring uh, days off and, and keeping yeah. everyone on a rotation. And you, you can talk yourself into it. Uh, but as you said, the Brewers are close enough that you probably aren't comfortable enough doing it. Yeah. And the Mets, or the, the NL East champion, let's mm-hmm. just say that, Yeah is close enough that you don't want to give up on that or yeah. or hamstring yourself if, right. if things break the right way. And yeah. so uh, all of the factors combined, uh, I agree with you, I think it makes a lot more sense to have a five-man rotation than a six-man rotation at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Uh, anything else you wanted to say on Flaherty before we move on to the, to the outfield? No, I, I'm very hopeful... Uh, just based on the workload in his starts. Um, and I have been watching John Denton's Twitter feed because before Flaherty's last major league uh, debut, the team shared with Denton, uh, I'm not sure through whom, but mm-hmm. Denton tweeted out that Flaherty's uh, baseball savant stats, his stat cast stats, on his pitches were as good as they have been, or were better than they have been since his 2019 season. Nice. And that he was in minor league parts. Yes. Parts that Be- had some before stat he, okay, yeah, great. before, and that was sort of, I think, leaked. Yeah. I don't want to be too cynical, but I think yeah. it was leaked to help justify the decision to skip the final minor league rehab start. Uh-huh. And so I've been wondering if Denton will share us any of the stat cast information yeah. <laughs> uh, from his final rehab stat start this time around. But since it's all been announced ahead of time, I'm not so hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so uh, next time we hit on here before we get into some listener questions uh, has to do with kind of the, the outfield and the little bit of a shuffle we've seen there here in the second half. And Ben, I thought I'd kick things off with a quiz for you. Uh, I am wondering if you can rank the outfielders in terms of their weighted runs created plus in the second half. Oh, in the second half. Yeah, that that's uh, that's a little bit trickier. Uh, 
I, I think Harrison Bader has dash marks. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, so no, Harris, no Harrison Bader. He doesn't qualify. Yeah, uh, he's so, also now a Yankee. So start. So starting at the top, who do you think has the best WRC plus in the second half? Are we are we counting like Donovan as an outfielder? Or are we going we, pure? We, we are counting Donovan as the outfield. I, I, just because he had enough. I, 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 you know, I thought on this all day. I went back and forth. I decided I think he gets enough starts out there. I'm going to throw him in the mix as well. Okay. I'm going to say I think uh, Dickerson one, Newt Bar two. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you've got both of those correct. Dickerson 203 WRC plus wow. in the second half. Well, see, half. I would have never guessed that. Pujolsian. Uh, new bar 165 so they are one and two um and then i think it's just based on the last week probably well i and here's the thing is i'm not sure if they're counting donovan's hitting overall this this counts as hitting overall okay all overall hitting in the second half then uh i'm gonna say donovan and then i'm gonna say o'neill and then i'm gonna say carlson well ben you've impressed me by getting all of these right yes donovan is next at 132 o'neill next at 124 although the way o'neill's hitting again by the time people listen to this that could be <laughs> 20 or 30 <laughs> points yes. higher um and then uh carlson uh at last at uh, 87 okay so that kind of leads us into um uh, one of the questions we have that I, we wanted to touch on here as we're talking about outfielders jd alfonso asked do you think Carlson's low average exit velo and low hard hit percentage are indicative of struggles he's to overcome? Or do you think he's more of a slap hitter than the scouts advertised? Um, and I think the, the headline as we look at those Cardinals outfielders, uh, you know, the plus side is I listed four guys there who are hitting, you know, basically 25% above league average or better. So that's great. But I think the concerning thing for us as fans and for the Cardinals is that Dylan Carlson, who I think they and we, you know, rated as probably the top outfielder, um, you know, coming into the second half, has kind of struggled. So, um, so I don't know. What, what do you think about about JD's question about Carlson and just about kind of some of these outfielders in general? Um, I I would not have described him as a slap hitter. And I still don't know if I would. Um, but I yeah. think the big concern is instead of seeing some of those, and these are all just averages. And like we know for a fact the Cardinals look at the, the average of the top 20% mm-hmm. of your batted balls. Um, and at the end of the year, I was actually going to maybe try to run all those numbers and, and get a better idea of how the Cardinals might view mm-hmm. potential free agents and then their own players, those types of things. So we, when you look at the, you know, the bars and the red and the blue on baseball savant, those are averages. And, you know, that, that the contours of everything else in that profile aren't yeah. necessarily yeah. immediately apparent. Well, I, and I'm not sure on their average exit velocity. I mean, you make a good point. I'm not exactly sure how they're measuring average. There's a lot of debate about how we imagine measure average exit velocity but Carlson is in the single digits there for whatever that is he's in the single digits for hard hit percentage and his his maximum exit velocity is only in the 47th percentile so I think it's very fair to say that he's a pretty low exit velocity hitter and and you know he was last year as well and and the trend has been downward and that's exactly that's exactly right and that's what you worry about instead of seeing maybe a little bit of incremental upward movement Right. You've seen actually something more than an incremental downward movement. Mm-hmm. And he's young enough and development is not linear that you hold out hope. Yep. Um, and we don't know what his minor league uh, stat cast data might have shown. Uh, so it's difficult to hang any scouts out to dry. But if you mm-hmm. look at his overall power numbers and, and, mm-hmm. and that in the minor leagues, it suggests he was hitting the ball harder. Well, it does, although, you know, it was always interesting the way that they handled Carlson because if you look at his minor league numbers, he doesn't have eye-popping minor league numbers at any level. But the reason for that is they moved him so aggressively. So they would move him to a level, and then pretty much the moment that he was, like, you know, starting to perform really well there, they would move him up again. 
So he just he really didn't rack up uh, big numbers, but it was because they were moving him aggressively, or at least that was kind of the story we told ourselves. But now I I, I find myself questioning that a little bit as well, and saying, well, you know, was you know was that the case, or did that maybe help mask that his maybe his ceiling was lower than we than we thought it was. Um, but that said, and something you said, Ben, I totally agree with. I, I would not call Dylan Carlson a slap hitter. To me, a slap hitter is like Juan Pierre. Uh, you know, Kyle Reese often has has mentioned Nick Markakis as a comp. I think that's a really good comp for um, you know for Dylan Carlson. You know, and that's a guy who makes a lot of contact, has a pretty good approach, but doesn't really hit for a ton of a ton of power. You know, Nick Markakis had a 14-year major league career. He was a very useful player. He was not a superstar player. You know, he wasn't even, you know, in, in his, I'm sure he had a few all-star appearances in his career, you know, but he would kind of, you know, maybe top out there a time or two. I, I think that's a, re, I, I continue to think that's a pretty reasonable expectation for, you know, for, for Dylan Carlson. Uh, what, um, the other thing I was just going to mention, and, and I mentioned this, I think, before the season too, his, his splits kind of terrify me. And, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Edmund's splits, which actually are much better this season. His, his, uh, his splits are, are, are looking a lot better. But uh, Carlson's are not. Um, Carlson continues to have a 50-point difference between uh, hitting as a right-handed batter versus hitting as a left-handed batter. Now, last season, he hit 150 as a right-handed batter, 103 as a left-handed batter. Well, you can totally live with that. That's you know that that's totally playable. But this year, with kind of an overall decline, he's hitting 128 as a right-handed batter and 74 as a left-handed hitter. So it's still a 50-point difference, but with the overall amount slipping, and and on top of that, the fact that obviously you hit left-handed considerably more than you hit right-handed, that 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 split is beginning to become a little bit of a problem. And I'm kind of wondering how does he how does he steer out of that skid. And this is the question that has perplexed people for quite a while, because I remember, I don't even know the year, but many years ago there was a study that was like, you need a thousand plate appearances to judge true talent, mm-hmm. uh, I think from each four splits. And so for a switch hitter, I was always like, oh, so do you need a, you need a thousand plate appearances right. from each side yeah. to declare this to be the, the true talent. And and the, the reality is, if you're trying to win at the major league level, right. how many times are you going to give a guy who isn't hitting yeah. that much of an opportunity to hit? And so, yeah. you know, it's difficult to measure that. You yeah. know, and then you look at someone like Edmund, who, you know, had quite a few plate appearances and mm-hmm. still has managed to improve uh, some this year uh, at the plate. And you wonder, you know, if Edmund, who's not as good a player, uh, coming up through the minors at each level and in scout's eyes as mm-hmm. a minor leaguer, mm-hmm. um, is able to show that improvement. Maybe a coach's son who was a, yeah. a highly, a more highly touted prospect could. Um, the, I, I wonder with some of these switch hitters, I, like, uh, it surprises me that we don't see more guys abandon switch hitting, frankly. You know, if your splits are that bad, and this again, this is not this year. This is like this is consistent for Carlson. He is this bad, and so I, I'm just like 50 points different. Like if you, if you hit a right-handed pitcher from the right-handed side of the plate, are you really telling me that you're going to be 50 point? You know, 50 percent uh, worse there. I I have a hard time believing that, but I mean, I, again. These guys have been doing it for many, many years. It's ingrained into them. It's who they are. It's it's not as easy as I'm making it out to be. The the thing that has is the most interesting to me, and baseball savant has this, and it's really what's really interesting is the big area of erosion for Carlson has been uh, both on chasing out of the zone. He's gotten worse at that this year. But he's also gotten worse at hitting balls over the heart of the plate. And watching him, and also looking at his overall profile, uh, you know, he's he seems to be struggling with who he is as a hitter and and what he is doing to attack pitching. Yeah. Because he's he's still not getting the walks. He had a lot better plate approach. It seemed like last year. 
And then if you look at the contours of his number this year, you see that that feeling that you have is backed up by the data. Mm-hmm. And so what is going on that has caused this erosion of plate approach that has also seen an erosion in his production? And, yeah. and what can the Cardinals do to help remedy that? And I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't either. I feel like maybe he needs a vacation, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Maybe just, you know, he's not playing that much at the, at the current moment anyway. Maybe just, like, give him a week, let him go to Hawaii, let him go to that hotel from White Lotus. Did you watch that series? <laughs> yes, you know? I did. Yeah, great series. I mean, you know, obviously some real potential risks there, you know? He could stay in the pineapple suite. He could stay in the pineapple suite. And if he pays for the pineapple suite, he better get in the pineapple suite. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's a real conundrum with him, I think, and it's 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 enough that it's concerning to me. But like you, Ben, you know, I feel like he's he's a guy who has shown enough tools, and he's young enough that um, I would say my expectation and my hope at this point is still that this is just a bump in the road. But you know, we'll see. It's definitely it's a bump that he has to overcome. So hopefully he'll he'll be able to do that. So. Um, let's go ahead and roll into those uh, questions. Um, and again, we always appreciate uh, so many people uh, leaving questions for us. Uh, you can do it um, on Twitter. Uh, you can respond if you follow us on Substack, etc. So um, let's see here. Uh, so Sashin Parikh, who I think is our, our most frequent question asker, Ben, but, but uh, asked some pretty good questions as well. And he asked two today, but we're going to hit them both. So question one, if Flaherty is effective as a starter, even a number four, number five, wouldn't moving Quintana to the playoff bullpen be the best move, assuming he's able, lefty replacement for the apparently broken Cabrera? So, you know, we're casting our eyes ahead a little bit here, of course, but let's be honest, we've all started thinking about what the playoff team's going to look like. So um, so what do you think? It, it is common that teams maybe go from a five-man to more like a four-man rotation in the playoffs. Would they move Quintana for that reason? What do you think? Uh, it's an interesting question, uh, in in part because the owners forced a lockout on everyone, which forced a, a more condensed and also a little bit of a longer into the calendar uh, regular season, which means we're getting just a little bit of a later start than we might have otherwise had to the postseason. And I don't know if you've looked at the schedule for the postseason, um, but there are not as many days off. I, you know, I haven't really looked too much beyond the first round. I know that first round, it is just like a three-game home. It's basically just like a weekend yep. series. And I know that they kind of condensed some of those, at least towards the beginning. But even through the whole duration of the playoffs, yeah. there's fewer off days. There, there could be some really crazy travel yeah. uh, from the league championship series to the World Series. You you know, it, it's easy to come up with a scenario where it's like there's a... The teams, the like, say the Mets and the Dodgers are in the NLCS, where they would, mm. they would play in New York, then they would have to fly without a day off and play in LA, right. uh, and you know you can do the same thing with uh, the Mariners yeah. or um, you know traveling to play say New York yeah. uh, and and the Yankees, and so. With those days off, I don't know how teams will structure uh, their rotations, but I think right. the Cardinals will structure theirs so that they will get Adam Wainwright as much as they can, uh, the starts in Bush Stadium. And as for Quintana versus Flaherty, I could see them maybe making that move because Flaherty will in all likelihood be a Cardinal next year and mm-hmm. uh, Quintana probably won't be. That's a good point. Um, but I think that uh, as Sashin has has uh, very astutely included in his question, you know, it all depends on Flaherty's performance. And yeah. I think the team, you know, this isn't going to be Schilt with John Gant where we're going on results. You know, it's going to be Flaherty's going to have to show that he's yeah. got the spin on the fastball, the break on the slider, and he's he's inducing the type of contact and the type of swings and misses that makes the team feel comfortable. It's not going to be ER ERA based because no yeah. one makes decisions based on ERA over a month. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think too is the the one thing about this too in terms of thinking about Quintana being a lefty. 
Quintana's a lefty, but Quintana's not a lefty who dominates left-handed batters. He's a he's a starting pitcher who you know gets ground balls, and so I don't think you really gain from him there. And in terms of what you would think of as your traditional kind of like lefties in your bullpen, I don't think he really fits fits that as well. So I think if Quintana were moved to the bullpen, he would be in more of the like uh, you know starters getting shelled um you know we're going to get him out after two or three kind of role is more where i would kind of see him being and the other thing is honestly this is one of those questions that i think is probably going to solve itself because i think when we get to the end of the season and the cardinals are in a great spot right now and really all of their starters the guys in the rotation right now i mean hudson hudson has been bad but the other four are pitching great and if we're imagining a world where flaherty returns and flaherty pitches well the likelihood that all five of those guys are throwing are still healthy and throwing well as we enter the postseason is pretty unlikely. So I don't think we'll see that. Um, second question, uh, Sashin has here been: Are the Cards trying to sign their very young players like Carlson, Gorman, and maybe Donovan, like the Braves and Mariners have done? And, and I was kind of glad to get this question because uh, I am really interested, um, or really been kind of. Uh, uh, following the contract that the uh, that the Mariners, uh, you know, that the, that the Mariners signed in the last week, and just wondering, would that be a contract that the Cardinals might, you know, might might be interested in because it's so heavily um, weighted on kind of like some performance measurements, and so I actually sort of I saw that and I thought, you know. This seems like a creative contract that I could see DeWitt maybe getting behind. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? The thing that the uh, Rodriguez contract made me think of was the Pujols con, the first Pujols contract, which okay. was the extension mm-hmm. that Walt Jockety negotiated, and a lot of agents panned as being too club friendly. But I was thinking, you know, how many home runs would Albert Pujols uh, be going for in the alternative? Uh, strand of the Cardinals verse mm-hmm. where the Cardinals maybe did something creative like this yeah. uh, for Pujols and he stayed a Cardinal. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you. I think listening to Mosellock's comments mm-hmm. about player opt-outs and then how that has affected the way that they uh, value contracts because he has said you know, basically the whole premise is we're probably underpaying you for great production at the beginning Mm -hmm. with the understanding we're going to overpay for poor production at the end. But what this is, is it is, it is structured based on, you know, more of an extended option that then becomes more valuable if the player performs. And that really mitigates the risk Uh, for the club to a degree, whereas you compare it to, say, the Tatis deal, Mm -hmm. um, which was signed a little bit later in in the player's career. But, you know, that is looking like it could be a catastrophic nuclear bomb of a failure right now. And at this time next year, it may look like it's fine. But right now, it's a little like... Yikes! Yeah, uh, poor San Diego. Well, and we always think about these contract things from like a winners and losers perspective, and it's always like that was a good contract for the team, that was a good contract for the player, etc. But there is a hypothetical world where there is kind of like a good for both contract, and I I looked at this and I thought like that seems like that could be closer to that good for both, and part of it I think is. I don't think there's any potential for catastrophe for either person here because yeah, you're right. If, if Julio Rodriguez, like if he just tanks after this season, you know um, it's, it's something like I think 117 million is guaranteed and that's still a lot of money, but that's not, you're not into catastrophe money, right? You're not into if, uh, you know, Fernando Tatis uh, is, you know, a washout with his $350 million, I, I believe contract, right? You know, and by the same token, you know, if Rodriguez just becomes a perennial MVP candidate, this has the potential to grow very, very high. It's not going to get to the like, you know, 500 plus million that Juan Soto is probably going to get or whatever, but it's going to be pretty high and pretty, you know, competitive. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't really say that it was a catastrophe for him. You know, it wouldn't be like, you know, 
uh, he signed the Salvador Perez deal or anything like that, right? So, um, so anyway, um, just to kind of finish up on Sashin's question there, the Cardinals are always trying to sign their very young players, right? They're floating deals anytime they can. Uh, someone who they think they can lock up for you know for value, they're going to do that. Um, so I'm sure that they're exploring different types of deals with any of these players and, and at very different scales. Um, but it's interesting to see what the Rodriguez and Mariners deal is because I think that could potentially, um, you know, perhaps be a path forward for maybe a deal with, uh, say, a Gorman or a Walker coming down the road who could be a superstar player. Maybe that's a way the Cardinals could do a really long extension with a player like that, which I don't think we would have seen previously. All right. Next up, uh, Cards Talk 314 asks, out of the four new babies, which one has the highest chance of being an all-star in the future? And Ben, I love this question because we're evaluating human babies. And when you and I started this show, that was, I, if you remember, that was one of the things we said is, I hope someday we're, we're rating babies on this show. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's an interesting question because I think as we've all noticed, uh, you know, I think at this point about 30% of the guys playing in the major leagues are children of like former major league players. Yes. So like if I went back and I, I found an unopened pack of like 87 tops and I flipped through it, I think about half the guys in there would have a kid that was playing right now. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think it's out there. I think, I think it's definitely something to consider. Um, I don't know much about, uh, you know, these gentlemen's wives. And if I'm just being scientific here, we got to look at the entire gene pool. So I think that's a little bit of a blind spot for us. And that's uh, like, you know, Ed McCaffrey, the Broncos wide receiver, married an Olympic, an Olympian. Yes. And they, they, their spawn was an NFL running back. Yes. And that seems just totally like, yes, yes that, they, that kid had the genes to do that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you see a lot of athletes doing that, but it also just makes sense that athletes would marry other elite athletes. I mean, I'm sure just lifestyle wise and, you know, priorities, they're pretty in line. So... With that in mind, Ben, any any thoughts? Which of these? Um, well, I looked for any juniors because, like Fernando Tatis Jr., mm -hmm. uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr., you know, we we have some namesakes, yeah, uh, who have who have followed in their father's major league footsteps. Mm -hmm. um, I did I did not see uh, any juniors amongst uh, the babies. Um, I think we're making strong changes as a society towards women playing baseball. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hopeful the new A League of Their Own TV show will help spur that transition mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, but at this point in time, I don't know if a baby girl born in 2022 will have an opportunity to be a major leaguer. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I, I think that... Uh, would hamstring, um, I believe Stephen Matz had a baby girl. I believe Nolan Arenado had a baby girl. And I believe Ryan Helsley had a baby girl as well. But I don't know if Jojo Romero had a boy or a girl. Sure. Oh, I've actually been Googling all these as well because I had the same thought. <laughs> I was like, did they, have, did they have boys or girls? I don't know. Um, I think the bottom line is I think any of these babies has a pretty high likelihood of playing in the major leagues. And I would say, you know, even if it's a baby girl, I think Nolan Arenado's daughter has a higher likelihood of playing in the major leagues than I ever did. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, 100%. So, um, and, and it would be amazing. I would love to see a woman play in the major leagues. I think that would be incredible. Um, uh, I think a knuckleballer would be a good good route there. That's always kind of what I've what I've and, thought. And if it if and when that happens, I feel like the daughter of a major league player would be the one that, that would was be the, the yes, yes because you know they'll have the resources for training yeah and also the culture is not going to be foreign to them and yeah. they'll have like you know like say it's Nolan Arenado's daughter yeah like who's going to tell. Nolan Arenado's daughter, she can't. That's exactly what I was going to say because Nolan Arenado is probably a Hall of Famer at that yes. point, right? Yes. So, so yeah, no one's going to tell no one's going to tell her no. So I think we have our answer. Nolan Arenado's daughter is going to be the first woman to play in Major League Baseball, and we excitedly look forward to that. Uh, Buck Webb asks, 
Why do the Braves have a winning record at Bush Stadium 3? Um, ben, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that's a really good question because the Cardinals have been pretty good <laughs> since they started playing in Bush Stadium 3. Um, I'm just going to assume, uh, unlike this year, uh, that the the Braves have typically played the Cardinals at Bush Stadium three earlier in the year when the Cardinals are terrible after Bill DeWitt goes cheap in the off season before they can add pieces at the trade deadline uh, and have had success that way. Um, you know, maybe they played the Cardinals when Albert Pujols was on the injured list, like in two thousand and six. Uh, you know, those those types of things. Um, also, remember though that they had that epic collapse in 2011 and I was kind of thinking about that and and how that might factor in but we're dealing with you know seven 16 years excuse me 16 years worth of games uh-huh. and I think it's just one of those weird baseball things where they don't come to Bush Stadium that often they usually play a three game series and it's baseball the worst team in the league usually wins at least 60 games the best team usually loses at least 60 games and so you're gonna have weird results especially in the middle with two pretty evenly matched clubs yeah yeah i agree i think it's just got to be kind of one of those those weird you know weird things i mean you know the cardinals and the cubs uh record over all time is like almost exactly 500 even though the cardinals have been the the better franchise for many 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 years and of course we chalk that up to it's an intense rivalry which i do think has something to do with it but also it's just baseball's weird and really if any team was going to have a winning record there i mean the braves are another team that is perennially pretty good i mean the braves don't go through many you know long um, stretches so i guess that's i guess that's what it boils down to All right, Uh, moving on to our next question, and I think this is a good one. Uh, Drizzy Druzter asks, what do you think the Cardinals will do for catcher next offseason? Go for a free agent or trade or stick stick with what they have and see what Kisner and Herrera can offer? Yeah, and, you know, I feel like a few weeks ago I would have been a little more up in the air on this, and I would have thought... You know, they might go out and get a free agent, but I'm kind of thinking less so now. And, um, you know, we talked about kind of some of the outfielders that have, you know, hit pretty well in the second half. Uh, Andrew Kisner has had a very good second half as well and is producing pretty well. And I think that puts them in a really fantastic place to go into next season with Kisner and Herrera as their, uh, you know, as their catchers. I think the club still sees Herrera as the long-term, um, you know, replacement there. But, um, you know, catcher is a notoriously difficult position. It takes guys a long time to kind of transfer and or, or uh, transition, uh, you know, and, and really perform the way that they have the potential to perform. So the fact that Kisner is playing well, I think, gives them some great runway. Um, because the way Kisner is playing right now, you know, and if he can perform similarly next year, you're perfectly happy to have Kisner, you know, get, you know, 60, 70% of the starts and Herrera kind of work his way in and basically just kind of, you know, let it go from there and see at what point, you know, if, Her- if Herrera really comes on and asserts himself, then, you know, Herrera overtakes the position and maybe, you know, Kisner um, is non-tendered in one of his beers or something like that. Um, so th- if I had to guess, I would say that's my expectation. I think they probably acquire a uh you know jobber journeyman who uh, on a minor league deal who but they they know is right there you know again like an austin romine type that they could bring up in the event that they needed him that's my expectation what do you think ben uh the way that herrera's audition which is what i took it to be when yadi went on the il um it it was just such a crash and burn that, that the club optioned him and signed Austin Romine, who is terrible. I know he just hit a home run against the Cardinals, but he's terrible. And the Cardinals looked at their situation and decided he was a better option in, in the major leagues as their catcher than Yvonne Herrera. And that kind of caused me a little bit of worry. And, you know, Marmol 
was very candid about how you know like preparing for pitcher for preparing the pitchers and doing game plans is is complex at the major league level you know and and they need to bring someone in who's ready uh to kind of do that on the fly and i'm and it left me sitting there thinking like you know Ivan Herrera is in AAA like what has he been doing <laughs> you know why is he not ready to do this and that makes me think the Cardinals might follow their old tried and true approach to blocking prospects as much as possible. And I think they might play a little bit more like in free agency and go for like a Matt Weeders type who they yeah. signed in the past. Um, a veteran who's good with pitchers and staffs, yeah. you know, has that type of reputation. Maybe not a bat, right? but someone who can make those starts work with all the pitchers and everyone's comfortable and trusting and let Yvonne Herrera further develop whatever skills he needs to develop down in triple a. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's probably the route that I expect them to take as we sit here today in, uh, as the calendar turns from August to September. Yeah. You make a good point. And I guess I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Um, Herrera, I think, still is in that Fabergé egg category. And we talk about how, you know, often those are guys, they don't want to bring them up until they can really, you know, give them a pretty clean run at things. That said, I think catcher is kind of a unique position where, you know, being in that kind of part-time role is a part of the transition there. And even if you think back to Yachty, you know, when Yachty first came up, he didn't immediately take the majority of the starts away from Mike Matheny. He was in a little bit of a kind of more of a part-time role and kind of transition. So, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on just how they feel about how Herrera has finished out this year. If, if you know, and assuming they go in and thinking Kisner is our number one, do they feel strong enough about Herrera to let him be the number two or do they sign somebody? Yeah, you may have convinced me that's probably more likely <laughs> actually, Ben, but but I could see him go either way. So, all right. Um, I think those are all the, the questions we had. Again, thanks everybody. You can always send us questions. Um, we do keep track of these. So even if you send it well before the next off day, we'll hang on to it and try to get around to it. Um, Ben, as we wrap things up here, uh, what are you going to be watching for? Uh, I, I mean, I think all eyes are on Jack Flaherty right now. You know, you have to wait for the reports. You know, number one, hopefully he makes it through the start healthy. Then number two, you have to wait for the reports on how he has recovered. Well, and I would start. say hopefully if he doesn't make it through the start healthy, I actually have gone back and edited out the parts of this where we're talking about him. <laughs> but I also might just not get around to it. So that'll be a fun fun Easter egg for a fan, for uh, listeners. Uh, so then you look at how has he recovered from the start, which I think we've all learned, you know, the night of, you, you don't get too excited. You wait and see how he's feeling thereafter. And then uh, we'll, we'll look to see how he performs in his second return to St. Louis uh, from the injured list this year. Because that's, that, that's really, the for, for my two cents, the most important thing that is up in the air right now for the St. Louis Cardinals is can Jack Flaherty return to the major league rotation and if he is able to return, how well will he pitch Yeah, yeah. once he's done so? I mean, I think that's probably the thing I'm most going to be watching for as well. But I anticipated that you might say that, and I wanted to say something different. So something else I'm going to be watching for just kind of through the final month of the season here is to see how those bullpen roles develop. Because I do feel like this is the time of year that the, the, the Cardinals and really all teams kind of look to really solidify um, who, what those bullpen roles are, and in particular, you know, just kind of who in line are the, you know, the end of our bullpen chain that are really going to lock things down. And when you think back on Cardinals teams that went uh, really deep into the playoffs, so you think about 2011, you think about 2013, you know, those are teams that, you know, went about five deep with guys in the bullpen that you were like, oh yeah, that guy's solid, that guy's solid, that guy's solid. So, you know, even if they were pulling the starter in the, you know, fifth inning, you knew what that countdown was going to be to get to the end of the game. And you felt pretty strong about all of them. And, and you know, for the, this year's team, obviously Helsley and Gallegos have been the two guys at the end of the game. And they've really been pretty solid all year. And, you know, and they remain there. But I think there's some room for some other guys to maybe kind of assert themselves. 
in in those uh, kind of spots before them. Steven Matz is still an interesting name, and he's still you know apparently tracking, trying to get back there, trying to pitch. You know, Steven Matz is a pretty good pitcher, so even if he doesn't have the stamina to do a lot. If Steven Matz could come in and throw you one inning and Steven Matz becomes your your sixth inning guy in the playoffs, that puts you in a pretty strong position. So I'm just going to kind of keep an eye on some of those guys because if they're going to get – at this point, it definitely looks like they'll get to the playoffs. But if they're going to go deep in the playoffs, they're going to need, you know, again, a good, you know, five guys deep that you just feel like, oh, yeah, this guy has it on on lockdown. And, you know, you're not having to go to a, a Packy Naughton or a Jake Woodford in those kind of spots. So – um, ben, do you have an off-day recommendation for folks? Um, I, I do. Uh, Eno Saris at The Athletic uh, wrote a really interesting article. He contracted COVID-19, and he's been training you know, for running, like doing half marathons and marathons. And you know, his recovery... I, I think was not quite what he had hoped it would be as in terms of how quickly the turnaround was. And so he actually looked at how contracting COVID-19 impacted major leaguers' performance. And he also included uh, interviews with major leaguers. And I thought it was a really uh, interesting article. And uh, the, the conclusion, I'm going to spoil it, not surprisingly, players' performance was suffered uh, for an extended period of time yeah. uh, after they returned from the COVID IL. Um, and yeah. having contracted COVID myself, uh, I'm not at all surprised. I could barely make it up the hill walking the dog for like six weeks yeah. uh, after I was, you know, allegedly no longer shedding the virus. Yeah. So uh, it, it was a very interesting article. Uh, an interesting idea that was well executed and worth a read. Yeah, I read that one as well. That was great as well. And yeah, I was surprised. So I, be, I believe in there he found that um, guys coming off of COVID actually performed worse than guys coming back from any other injury. So like by the time a guy with a knee injury or an, uh, an elbow injury, from the moment they return off the disabled list, it, the, the COVID guys were performing even worse. So that now that I second your recommendation there. I'm going to recommend... Uh, 30 for 30 podcast. It was a single episode they, they dropped recently um, called The Longest Game. And it's uh, it's like a 45-minute piece on the, um, the, uh, the 33-inning minor league game that happened in 1981 that I think folks have probably heard about. It's, it's the longest game in history, so it's very notable for that. Uh, Wade Boggs and Cal Ripken Jr. were playing on opposite teams in it. It's an unbelievably wild story. And... It is so, the story is so well told um, in this 30 for 30 podcast. Um, they actually also, they, they featured it on All Things Considered on NPR as well, kind of in a shortened version. So folks may have heard some of it there. But, um, you know, I kind of, I know the story of that, you know, and I've read several things about it. But still just the, the way that it played out and the details and the color. And they talked to a number of people who were there. They had a play-by-play, like the radio play-by-play from the game, which I had never heard before. And my, you can really hear it in the voice of those, those uh, minor league play-by-play guys that are, you know, doing the, you know, the, the 31st inning at like 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, so anyway, I would strongly recommend that. Uh, ben, anything else before we wrap things up? Uh, no, it feels really good to be in first place, and hopefully the Cardinals can keep playing well, and we get to see uh, how many more do we need? Six? Six more Albert Pujols home runs to get to 700? Uh, that sounds right, yeah. So, so uh, go Cardinals and go Albert. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, thank you, as always, to Devon for the music, to Dan for um, helping us out on social media. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you on the next Cardinals holiday.